It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? The first simply disappears, the other two died. Pretties, it's your host, Ashley Lana, your certified nightmare prescriber, and we're back at it again this week with another lullaby. This is a heavy episode. (laughs) I'm actually re-recording my introduction because I felt as though my first one wasn't happy enough to cover the fact that this is a worst of the worst episode. This guy is a friggin' fruitcake. I think we just need to start off really, really happy and it'll be good. So how is everyone doing? I hope you're fantastic. Speaking of fruitcakes, fruitcakes are like Christmas time and I just seen the first Hershey Kisses Christmas Bells advertisement this week. So you know what that means. Mariah Carey and Michael Buble have officially defrosted and it is time to deck your halls. I love Christmas more than I love Halloween. And you're probably thinking, ugh, why? And a lot of you probably lost a lot of faith in me with that one sentence. But if you're not mad at me for saying that, then thank you. And if you are, then for the love of how harsh this episode is, just prepare, just try to care right now because I'm trying to build this up positive, okay? So I'm gonna get vulnerable. I love being able to get cozy and cuddle next to a fire and watch like classic Christmas movies like Home Alone and Christmas Vacation and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty and I love those really cheesy Hallmark movies where it's the same cafe, the same premise, the same love story. I love that and this is really hard for me to say because it's so hard for me to be this vulnerable. (laughs) But I like using Christmas as an excuse for everything super fluffy and happy because as a horror fan, that shit's hard for us, okay? (laughs) So during the holidays, I usually take about two days to put my Christmas decorations up. And then by the end of it, my feet are usually killing me because I'm scaling the counters and the stools in the kitchen like Tomb Raider. And then I'm just vomiting the pagan Christmas spirit everywhere. It's a good time. I genuinely like it. So that's what I did this weekend. Welcome to Lullaby. (laughs) We previously examined Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple cult of Jonestown. And that was fun. We learned about the manipulation tactics and how cult leaders use them to slowly brainwash their followers' minds into doing things that they never thought they would do. And don't worry, there is a plethora of cult crimes out there. So never fear, I will always have creepy cults for you, all right? The man we are delving into this week, as I just previously said, is a Ashley Lana certified fruitcake. This guy is a nut, and it's a wow episode, a worst of the worst. Don't listen to this episode if you have animals in the room. Uh, 
kids ugh, who cares um no i'm totally joking but yeah this is a hard episode um i can read case files and not squeam or squirm and i'm good but when it comes to animal cruelty i do get uncomfortable but i read the documentations because they are critical to understanding the progression of psychopaths pre-warning again yes this episode involves animal cruelty but i carefully go about explaining it are we good are we all on the same page fantastic because crime cases as bizarre as this one what drive me into dissecting criminal psychology behind their motives so let's dive head in first to this week's bloodbath so get comfortable because sweet dreams are made of these the following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of murder body mutilation cannibalism sexual assault on a child and animal cruelty Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. His body lay cold, shaking and limp on the couch as the night started to bring darkness into the apartment. The cages of rabbits fell silent as the man sat alone. The door to the room opened and an older man walked in carrying a deck of cards. Playing cards was the only joy he had with his son these days. Nothing seemed to bring true joy to his life at least not in a healthy way. Upon seeing his son on the couch, he rushed over and asked what happened. His son responded with, I ate a bad rabbit. The father rushed his son to the hospital where the doctors performed blood work. The son explained that he had food poisoning and needed to cleanse the poison. The doctors soon discovered that the man did not have food poisoning, but he had severe blood poisoning from directly injecting rabbit blood into his veins. The young man explained that the rabbit he had eaten previously consumed battery acid and that he had to inject good rabbit blood directly into his veins to save himself. The father watched as his son got taken to a mental institution where he would live under proper supervision. Two days later, his son escaped. This is the grotesque story of Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23, 1950, in Santa Clara County, California, to Richard Chase Sr., a computer specialist at McClellan Air Force Base, and Beatrice Chase, who was a teacher. Richard was the firstborn, and he had a younger sister named Pamela, who was born in 1954. To the outside world, the Chase family were just like every middle-class, hard-working family in America. But behind closed doors, Richard's parents were very strict and he would often receive emotional abuse and physical violent beatings from his father. One punishment Richard would receive was having his father force feed him until he would vomit, starting at only the age of two years old. Richard's sister Pamela recalled witnessing her brother being aggressively shaken by their father and thrown into the walls on multiple occasions. In 1953, the Chase family moved to Sacramento, California, where young Richard participated in many activities, such as joining the Cub Scouts and playing four years of Little League Baseball. In school, his teachers thought he was well-mannered and he was a very kind child. He had lots of friends and always had sleepovers. Richard Chase Sr. quickly became an alcoholic due to the stress of managing the family's finances and feeling as though his son was a burden. Both parents would constantly fight and Richard's mother Beatrice would accuse her husband of always trying to poison her and that he never loved her. At around the age of 10, Richard began developing a taste for killing and mutilating animals. Richard would find neighborhood cats, dogs, birds, and rabbits to torture and kill them, just to study what their internal anatomy looked like and play with their blood. 
With the lack of parental attention, Richard's parents did not even see their son had acquired these grim interests early on, but the local neighbors most certainly noticed. The disappearance of all the stray cats became a cause for concern. Beatrice even found a body of a cat in her garden, but nothing came of it. Richard's parents' relationship became worse over the years. His mother Beatrice began seeking the help from two psychiatrists. When Richard was 13 years old, his parents lost their house, and seeing his parents go through emotional abuse and financial hardship began taking a toll on him. Richard began disassociating from reality just to cope with the pain of what was going on at home, and he started believing that he was actually a member of the Jesse Younger gang, which was the group of outlaws in the 19th century that included the infamous Jesse James. So the difference between the imagination of a normal child and Richard Chase was, okay, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, I was the yellow Power Ranger and I was a Spice Girl. But I knew I was not a Power Ranger or a Spice Girl. Whereas Richard genuinely believed he was a 19th century criminal outlaw. His brain would just disassociate from reality and compartmentalize his traumatic experiences to keep himself from feeling the emotional and physical pain from being at home. And according to Psychology Today, a child who suffers from disassociation can go through a blackout period where they separate themselves completely and can have a swift change in like their mood, their personality, and they can act like a completely other person and even age in socially inappropriate ways that can also lead to misdiagnosed psychotic or behavioral disorders. And this is caused by children with a traumatic neglect or abuse at home as either a witness or a victim. And it's important, really important to note that there is no single cause that has identified with disassociation, all right? Not every person who has lived with some form of abuse will disassociate, okay? So we're not attacking anyone here. This is lullaby. We're just discussing the conversation. <laughs> so the phenomenon of disassociation believes that the attachment theory basically states that a caregiver, parent, or role model ideally serves as a secure base from which a child receives support and comfort, determines how the child will come to view the world and their future relationships. Now, little Richie grew up witnessing his alcoholic and abusive father fight with his mother, and he hated this. No child would love seeing this, and he wanted nothing to do with it, so he would disassociate, and he found, unfortunately, negative outlets to disassociate. We will get into those. So he would purposely burn pans while cooking in the middle of the night. He would leave messes all over the house. He would never clean them up. And when he was home alone, he would turn up the thermostat to 90 degrees and just lay completely buck naked on the couch. Let's just watch and dissect how these progress. Let's continue. When Richard had entered the ninth grade, his parents finally split up. His mother moved to Los Angeles to live with relatives, and his father stayed in Sacramento, where he intended to keep his son with him. But only four months after his parents split up, his mother and sister moved back in with Richard and his father. Richard was quiet and strange at home, but was popular and well-groomed at school. He started dating and was successful with the ladies. However, this would not last once the idea of having sexual intercourse was introduced. A girl named Libby Christopher began a one-year relationship with Richard. But this came to a halting stop when Richard could not express his attraction to her. Richard was heterosexual, but could never tell Libby his attraction to her, causing them to break up. 
the other girls Richard dated did not last long. Again, he could not tell them how he felt. It was also discovered that Richard could not maintain an erection to have sexual intercourse. The idea of his impotence was the beginning of an obsession to Richard. Emotionally, he felt inadequate and worthless as a man. Richard would then believe that the reason he could not get an erection was that his body did not have enough blood to achieve an erection. He thought that he needed to fill his body with blood from an external giver to get aroused. Richard would then kill his girlfriend's cat and drink the blood directly from the animal. When this did not work, he believed that he needed more. He then shot a neighborhood dog and pressed a Dixie cup to the wounds to collect the blood and proceeded to drink it then and there. Richard stopped eating and his weight began to plummet. He became highly insecure and paranoid. He continued going to parties and trying to forget about his erectile dysfunction. Because of this, he relied heavily on drinking and acting odd in public. There were times at parties where he would get so drunk, he would strip naked and run down the street shouting and making crazy noises. One of his concerned friends decided one night that he had had enough with how Richard was acting and he should go home. While driving him back, Richard confided in the teen that he was impotent and it was causing him so much grief. In the 1960s, when Richard was 15 years old, he began smoking marijuana and experimenting with LSD and amphetamines. His personality was becoming messy, moody, and he had zero remorse for theft and killing animals. His once high grades became Ds and Fs, and he no longer cared about his education. His personal hygiene had become almost unbearable. His appearance was grimy, and he lived in filth. His friend group eventually diminished, and his parents noticed. However, they did not care since it was the 60s, and that it was probably the current trend. Long hair, messy, that was probably the reason. Richard's father would constantly bring up his lack of ambition and his lifestyle to his son, which only ended in heated fights. In 1965, Richard got arrested for the possession of marijuana. He denied it and said that it belonged to someone else. He was sentenced to community service on weekends, and Richard Chase Sr. was disappointed in his son and refused to hire a lawyer to defend him during court. This only fueled Richard's resentment to his parents. Even with his low grades, Richard successfully graduated high school in 1968. And at only 18 years old, Richard Chase began seeing a psychiatrist due to his own concern for his emotional instability and the unresolved stress of his erectile dysfunction. His psychiatrist informed him that the cause of his erectile dysfunction was the heavy stress of his home life, plus his anxiety and or repressed rage towards women causing his impotence. Richard believed that the cause of his impotence was that his body lacked blood to even produce an erection. Later that year, Richard began working at the Retailers Credit Association as a typist. His work exceeded his parents' expectations, and they believed that their son was finally getting back on track to becoming successful. In September of 1968, Richard enrolled into his first semester at the American River College, and he was doing well. Until, unexpectedly, one day Richard decided to take a leave of absence from his studies, but his approach to explaining his reasoning ended up in him getting expelled. In February 1971, Richard moved out of his parents and into a house with two young girls, Sid Evans DeMarkey and Rachel Statham. In the beginning, Richard was considered a normal roommate and no issues arose. At least, normal until his drug use became an overwhelming problem to his roommates. His use of acid and other drugs only increased his bizarre behavior. He never showered or bathed, and he refused to wash his clothes or clean up after himself. Richard developed heightened hypochondriac tendencies, which is the condition where a person believes they are constantly developing a serious illness. 
He complained about how his heart would stop beating because someone stole his pulmonary artery. He thought that his cranial bones inside of his skull had started moving around, so he shaved his head to be able to observe the activity. He also would hold orange peels to his head, believing that the vitamin C would be absorbed into his brain through diffusion. One day, Richard was found boarding up the door to his bedroom. He began breaking down the wall in his closet to create a new door, saying, quote, No one can sneak up on me from inside. In another bizarre act, his roommates walked in on Richard hanging out of a window, waving a gun at people walking outside. This terrified the two girls. They did not want to approach Richard, so they packed their things and immediately abandoned the house. Not being able to afford rent, Richard moved back in with his parents. Living with his parents did nothing for his erratic behavior. He was fully convinced that his mother was trying to poison him, an exact accusation that Richard witnessed his mother accusing his father of while growing up. They would get into fights and he would physically attack her. Richard had an imaginary friend who he would speak to and discuss his concerns about people following him and his mother controlling his thoughts. One time, his mother tried calling the mental hospital, which resulted in Richard beating her violently with the phone. Richard was getting psychiatric checkups where he was finally diagnosed with being schizophrenic. And everyone was telling him that he was just a little strange and he just needed to be monitored. Richard Chase was not a threat. His parents got concerned about his behavior and sent him to live with their grandmother in Los Angeles. When this was not ideal, his parents decided to buy him his own apartment where he could do whatever he wanted. Richard is now 21 years old and living on his own and had the freedom to do whatever he wanted without anyone interrupting him. Every day, he would travel to the local farm and purchase multiple rabbits. He would then take them back to his apartment where he would butcher and drink their blood directly out of their corpse. He would eat their entrails raw and he would even put everything into a blender and then consume the entire concoction. The reason he was doing this daily was that he believed that his heart was shrinking and he needed to maintain its size by drinking blood in the fear that his heart would shrink to the point of disappearing completely and he would die. Okay, I warned you that this man was a fruitcake and we are not even at the full baking cycle of this guy. So Richard Chase has a psychological condition called Cotard syndrome. This is great, all right? <laughs> so pay attention. This is characterized by anilalistic delusions, primarily focusing on their body and the fear of losing body parts. Sometimes they even believe that they're, they're just dead. Richard Chase believed that because he was impotent and couldn't achieve an erection, that his circulatory system was disappearing due to the lack of blood in his body. And that's why he started killing animals and drinking their blood to top up his love sausage because he thought that that would work for the lack of better words. I do apologize for that one. It was kind of gross. So this kind of took place in the 60s and the 70s and sildenafil citrate or more commonly known as Viagra or the little blue pill wasn't approved until 1996. So our little Richie had to get creative and it was at the expense of poor, helpless little animals. Now, like many psychopaths we will cover in later episodes, the animal cruelty will never be enough. Killers have to progress to bigger thrills and it's a never ending cycle. So animal cruelty and psychopaths, this is something that I really wanna to touch on and I will refer to it in many episodes going on. So it's the McDonald triad. 
And the McDonald triad proposes the idea that three factors can indicate whether someone will grow up to be a serial killer or another type of violent offender. And these three factors include being cruel or abusive to animals, pyromania and fire starting, and bedwetting in childhood. Researchers refer to this phenomenon as a possible precursor to future antisocial behaviors like serial and sexual murder. The McDonald triad has recently been discredited due to the lack of critical trial reviews and the validity of the triad. So there is evidence that any one of the triad behaviors can predict future violent offenders, but because it's rare to find all three behaviors together, it's been discredited. So if there were a McDonald quartet, so to speak, let's just throw this around here for a second, we would add a fourth factor, which is head injuries. The number of serial killers with head injuries as a child is ridiculous. Let's just hypothetically use this McDonald triad on our young friend, Richard Chase. Richard was a bedwetter, check. Richard would start fires in the kitchen at night, check. Richard murdered animals, check. And our number four, our cake topper, Richard Chase was violently shaken and thrown by his father against walls, which would probably result in some form of head injury. So, Richard Chase is the poster child for the perfect McDonald triad. He has all three, plus our fourth little head trauma. So remember all these little bits of information to help you have aha moments in later lullaby episodes, okay? Let's continue. In 1975, Richard's father went to go visit his son in his apartment. When he walked in, he found his son sitting on the couch with skin pale as death itself. Richard Chase Sr. immediately took Richard to the hospital, where his son said he ate a bad rabbit and was suffering from food poisoning. The doctors performed blood work on Richard and discovered that he did not have food poisoning. He had actually suffered severe blood poisoning from directly injecting rabbit blood into his veins. He told the nurses that he had eaten a rabbit that had bad blood because it ate battery acid and that the acid was melting away at his insides. So he had to intravenously inject clean rabbit blood to cure him. Richard was then involuntarily institutionalized into a mental hospital. After only two days, Richard was able to escape and run to his mother's house, where he was then apprehended again and sent to an institution for the criminally insane. While in the hospital, Richard only talked about blood and killing animals, and this scared the other patients, even the staff. He was found on many occasions with blood smeared on his mouth and his body. Richards told the nurses that he always just cut himself shaving. Soon, the staff found Richard physically biting the heads off of live birds that gotten into his room from the window, and eating the heads and sucking the blood out of their necks. Richard was then given the nickname, Dracula. In 1976, Richard was deemed no longer a threat to society because he had been on anti-schizophrenic medication and he was then released to his parents for supervision. His parents bought him another apartment and Richard's mother decided that her son did not need the medication and took him off of it. Richard began obsessing over the hillside strangler murders and he began purchasing multiple firearms where he practiced with them daily. It was in 1977 when Richard's mother heard a knock at the door. When she answered, her son shoved a dead cat in her face and began eating it right in front of her. Richard's mother simply closed the door and reported it to no one. Later that same year in August, the Nevada State Police were called to Pyramid Lake. They found Richard's Ford Ranchero stuck in a sand drift. Inside of the vehicle, they found two rifles and a bucket of blood and a cow's liver. 
the police found Richard wandering naked, covered in blood, claiming it was his own, and that the blood in the buckets was also his. It was in December of 1977 when Richard began progressing his crimes. It is believed that the reason for the amplification of his crimes was due to his parents not allowing him home for Christmas. Richard had shot a cat in front of his mother inside of their house, and for this, they refused to let him back inside. On December 27, 1977, Richard had fired a 22 handgun into the house of Dorothy Polinski. The bullet shot through the window and through her hair, missing her skull and lodging into the kitchen cabinet. No one was harmed and Richard was not caught. Two days later, on December 29th in East Sacramento, a 51-year-old man named Ambrose Griffin was helping his wife bring in the groceries when Richard drove by and opened fire, immediately killing the man. The police had no leads on who the shooter was, so again, Richard Chase got away. At this point in Richard's life, many neighbors had witnessed him carrying multiple animals into his apartment, like dogs and cats, which were never seen again. All the pet stores in Sacramento began blacklisting Richard Chase's name from purchasing any animals from their locations due to his frequent visits. To get animals elsewhere, Richard began getting animals from Craigslist, promising to give the animals a proper home. But when Richard would get home, he would proceed to carry out his vampiric needs and brutally murder and eat the flesh and drink the blood. He would then call the previous owners from payphones and detail what he had done to their dogs and cats while remaining anonymous. Many people began noticing how animals were reacting around Richard. They would bark, growl, and recoil in his presence. If I were to relinquish my cat, keyword relinquish for some unfortunate reason, and then get a phone call from someone and they went into detail about killing and drinking my cat's blood, Wicca, cover your ears, this is graphic. I, anonymous or not, all I need is your eye color and I will be able to locate you and give you the name of your favorite teddy bear as a child and I will hunt you down. <laughs> as all of you guys know, I have my internal and external resources, but please never fear. It's only if you come after my cat. I use my powers for good, but leave the animals alone. <laughs> leave my cat alone. Like this guy, he's fucking asking for it. So Richard Chase would collect all these animals every day and he would make these disturbing phone calls harassing the previous owners. And he built up this negative energy about him that made animals react aggressively towards him. I wanted to know more about how the evolution of this happens. So I read three separate studies that explain how animals sense fear at a heightened peak when compared to humans. The term is called fear conditioning, and it's the ability to memorize a dangerous signal radiating from emotional or physical forces. In mammals, fear conditioning is mediated by the amygdala in the brain. So it's a cluster of cells located at the base of the brain that recall dangerous remembrances and emotional responses in turn. So this portion of the brain signals that gut feeling you get when something isn't right. Now animals such as dogs and cats have a heightened response in compared to humans. So when animals would be in the presence of Richard Chase, they would have heightened visual and auditory awareness of his bad intentions and they would react accordingly. Like Richard probably smelt of dead animals, which other animals can easily smell. And I don't know about you guys, but like the smell of a decomposing human body it's it's very specific it's disgusting no i did not murder said dead body all right let's clarify that i'm not going to jail for this podcast <laughs> 
I also grew up on a farm and dead animals happen when you grow up on a farm. They don't smell like a decomposing human body, but the distinct odor is enough to pull you out of any train of thought, human or animal. If you smelt that on someone, your senses would spike and you would be out of there. It is an instant reaction when you smell something dead. It's, you could be doing the world's hardest crossword puzzle and smell that and be like, there's dead, there is dead around here. <laughs> I smell death. So animals, especially dogs, have a sense of smell that's 100,000 times higher than a human. For every one human scent receptor, a dog has 50. So even if Richard Chase bathed, which was probably not thorough, animals would definitely be able to smell that and sense his negativity as well through their natural fear conditioning and would react accordingly. Now, here's your warning. This is where the story gets bad. Let's continue. To Richard Sr. and Beatrice Chase, it seemed as though their son Richard was starting to get his life together. He had started bathing and he even cut his hair. He still had his little quirks, but to them, they just rationalized it on the fact that they took him off his medication. He also claimed to have been looking for a job, when in reality, Richard was beginning to ramp up his crimes. The days of thirsting over rabbit blood were dwindling, and the thirst for bigger thrills was increasing. He decided to escalate his crimes over the course of a month rather than years like an organized killer. On January 11, 1978, Richard Chase approached a female neighbor, casually asking for a cigarette. Then he physically pushed her to a wall and forcibly demanded the entire pack. The thrill of having physical power over another human being excited Richard. In mid-January, Richard stalked the streets until he arrived at 2909 Bernie Street, home to a woman named Jean Layton. He attempted to open the patio door, and when he found it was locked, he proceeded to the front door and the windows. He jiggled the latches to find they were all locked. Lurking around the back door, he came face to face with Jean. The silhouette of the gaunt, disheveled man with no expression stared back at her. The light from inside the house only highlighted his sharp facial features. The man just stared at her. Richard then lit a cigarette, turned around, and walked out of her backyard into the alley. Richard then chose another random house belonging to Robert and Barbara Edwards. He tried the door. This one was unlocked. When Robert and Barbara came home that evening, they found the filthy Richard Chase just standing in their hallway. They chased Richard out of their house and he took off down the street. The couple later found a bag of items that he had planned to steal, including rings, personal items, decorative daggers, and money. When the couple went into the baby's nursery, they discovered that Richard had opened the dresser and urinated on all of the baby's clothes, and he even defecated onto their baby's bed. After the attempted burglary, Richard went to the local supermarket to get a drink. It was here when he seen his old friend from school, Nancy Holden, who recalls barely recognizing Richard due to the fact that he was so unkept, but he was wearing a bright orange parka covered in brown stains. Richard began aggressively asking her for a ride, but she refused. When she broke free from his grasp, she fled the store. Richard followed closely behind her, and as Richard was about to enter the passenger side door, Nancy sped off. It was on January 21, 1978, when 22-year-old Teresa Wellen was in her backyard taking out her garbage. Richard found an unlocked door and walked into her house. He seen her outside. He opened the door and held up his 22 revolver and fired. Teresa dropped the garbage and held up her hands. 
The bullet entered through the palm of her hand and the trajectory ejected the bullet out of her elbow. The second shot entered her skull, collapsing Teresa to the pavement. There, Richard fired a kill shot into her temple. Richard then dragged Teresa's body into the house, laying her on the floor. Casually walking into the kitchen, Richard found a knife and picked up an empty yogurt container from the ripped garbage bag. He went to Teresa's body, cut off her left nipple, and sucked the blood directly from her body. He then stabbed her torso with such force that it cracked her sternum open. He continued to cut open her stomach and remove her insides. Richard used the yogurt cup to scoop the blood up from her stomach cavity and drink it, and had sexual intercourse with it. To leave his final mark on the body, Richard went outside and found a pile of dog feces. He went back into the house and shoved it so far into Teresa's mouth that it was wedged into her throat. Later that evening, her husband came home to find her on the floor. Teresa Wallen was only 22 years old, and autopsy reports revealed that she was three months pregnant. The police immediately began investigating the murder. They discovered houses in the surrounding neighborhood that had been burglarized, and the bodies of disemboweled dogs were located close to the houses. The police did not have much information to get a lead on. The criminal had committed burglary and murder. However, the motive was unclear due to Richard Chase being a disorganized killer, with random attacks having no emotional connection with any of his victims. The police began researching a motive, but before they could get any further, Richard would continue his spree before they could pin it on him. Richard took a couple days to go house to house in the area, asking for copies of Mad Magazine. It is unknown if he was trying to plan his next crimes or if it were a part of his schizophrenic breaks. The behavior of Richard was enough for people to tell the police. And two days after the murder of Teresa Wellen, Richard purchased two puppies from a family. He then killed and drank the blood of the animals. He then left the bodies on the steps of the previous owners. The police were called, and when the family described the man who purchased the puppies, it sparked a clue in the detective's mind. The man's description matched the young creepy man going door to door asking for mad magazines. The detective ordered an autopsy on the murdered puppies and found fragments of a bullet from a 22 revolver. But this was not enough evidence to tie the crime to the murder of Teresa Wellen. On January 27th, Richard broke into the house of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth. She was a single mother of six-year-old Jason. At 9 a.m. that morning, she had been babysitting her 22-month-old nephew. Evelyn's neighbor, named Dan Meredith, came over to check on his friend and help out with the kids. While Evelyn decided to take a bath, Richard Chase had found an unlocked door. He walked into the house, saw Dan Meredith, and shot him point-blank in the head with his 22 revolver. This killed him instantly. Richard heard six-year-old Jason scream and run into his mother's room. While on the way of chasing Jason, he stopped in the 22-month-old baby's room and shot him in the head, proceeding to go into the room and kill Jason. He then shot Evelyn in the head and dragged her body onto the bed, where he sodomized her corpse while slicing the back of her neck and drinking the blood. Medical examiners noted an unusual number of ejaculations inside of the rectum of the corpse. After he raped her body the first time, he stabbed her vital organs, bleeding out her body and drinking it from a bucket. He then stabbed her anus six times and then sodomized the wounds. Richard then retrieved the corpse of the baby, taking it into the bathroom and splitting its skull open into the bathtub and consuming some of the brain matter. While doing this, he heard a knock at the door. It was the friend of young Jason Miroth. The knock on the door startled Richard. Richard grabbed the keys from Dan Meredith's body, took the body of the baby and fled the house. 
The little girl ran to the neighbor's house screaming for help. The neighbor entered Evelyn Mira's house, seen the horror and called the police. Once Richard Chase got home, he took the small corpse of the baby and cut off its penis. He used it as a straw to suck the blood out of its body. He then dismembered the corpse and put the organs into his blender and he drank it. He then disposed of the rest of the body in a nearby church. The police arrived at the crime scene where they found perfect handprints and sole shoe imprints in the blood inside the house. They also discovered that the body had been mutilated, but the only the kidneys had been left untouched, just like the Teresa Wallen case. The cases were officially connected. The detectives on the case had fully composed the criminal profile on the killer. A composite sketch was compiled, and they were able to look for a tall, young, white, malnourished loner, physically unclean, and stated that he would definitely continue murdering. This is where we get into my absolute favorite territory in true crime, criminal profiling. This is my future career. This is what I'm in school for, okay? So this is where an investigator uses case files and the nature of crimes to identify the personality and characteristics of a criminal. This is my obsession. I love this stuff. I am so passionate about solving murders and crimes, okay? So it's not about the bloodlust, the gruesome details no to me it's about why why does a criminal progress to such monstrosities and psychologically accept their actions to be able to continue to be able to construct a profile blueprint of a suspect based on crime scene details is freaking awesome and that's why i have this podcast i want people to share this excitement this deeper depth of true crime and the crimes are horrific because a killer deemed it acceptable in their heads to do these things. Why are they like this? What influenced them? Who do they want to become? Where does it stop? And how does a person recognize these traits to stop them? Those are the questions behind my episodes. I love horror and I love to be scared, but more importantly, I love the profiling. I love the psychology. I can only hope to inspire that these questions will delve you guys into the darker side of true crime with me. And the, the profiler on this case was just an officer and he was able to compile a profile that went off of a hunch. The officer on the case was named Lieutenant Roy Biondi and he previously attended an FBI criminal profiling seminar. And at the time, Criminal profiling was a new concept. It wasn't widely used and people kind of thought it was bullshit. So he used what he learned and he connected the murder of Ambrosio Griffin, Teresa Wellen, and Evelyn Miroth by connecting the 22 caliber bullets and the fact that kidneys on two of the females were left alone. And he does this as these cases progress. Now, oh, I'm sorry, this is just so exciting. <laughs> so he assumed that the murderer was a young Caucasian male due to the fact that in this suburban neighborhood in the 70s, no one recalled seeing any minorities out and about. And in a suburban neighborhood in the 70s, people would have noticed that immediately. So when he compared the police reports, there was a suspicion of an unkept man in his 20s going door to door. And he thought, well, this is a little strange for a little suburban neighborhood. So he went with that hunch and he kind of utilized that to kind of put a target on this man. So with that, he also stated that the man probably lacked social skills because of the time between the break-ins 
and the time of the death. So he knew that this killer did not want to strike up a conversation and therefore was most likely a loner. The officer also concluded that the murderer had a mental illness and that was most likely schizophrenic because of how disorganized and messy the crime scenes were. The officer continued to explain that the crimes happened during the day, not common for an organized killer who does everything and tries to be hidden. So because the crime spree was in a small neighborhood suggests that the killer was disorganized and new to the location. All of this fit Richard Chase perfectly. A sketch of Richard Chase was now circulating in the media. Richard's old friend, Nancy Holden, whom Richard had tried to get a ride from at the supermarket before, seen the sketch. Nancy's father was a police officer and she told him about the incident, explaining how the sketch looked just like Richard. The detective did a background check on Richard Chase and discovered that he was medically diagnosed as schizophrenic. He spent time in a mental institution, as well as the incident at Pyramid Lake, and that he had a concealed weapon arrest of a 22 revolver. Immediately, the police went to Richard's apartment, where he did not answer the door. The officers did not have a warrant for his arrest, so they pretended to leave the premise, but they just waited outside the hallway until Richard left. Richard moments later left his apartment carrying a blood-soaked box filled with blood-stained wallpaper, stained clothing, and his 22 revolver. Richard began fleeing but was knocked to the ground by an officer as he turned the corner. The police finally arrested their suspect. The police obtained a warrant to begin searching the apartment, where they found the walls covered with bloodstains, floor to ceiling. The refrigerator and all the dishes were covered in blood. Dismembered animal body parts were found wrapped in tinfoil. The brain matter of the 22-month-old baby was found in a Tupperware container, and pieces of his body were wrapped in saran wrap. The internal organs of Teresa Wellen and Evelyn Miroth were found as well. On his table, they found a calendar, and on the dates of Teresa Wellen and Evelyn Miroth's murders, Richard had written the word, today. The calendar then had the same word written 44 more times on 44 separate dates that coming year. In 1979, Richard Chase stood trial for six counts of murder. The defense attempted the insanity plea to avoid the death penalty and get a life sentence, suggesting that Richard's crimes were not premeditated. On May 8, 1979, the jury found Richard Trenton Chase guilty of six counts of first-degree murder, rejecting the insanity plea, and he was sentenced to death by gas chamber. On December 26, 1980, Richard Chase was found dead in his prison cell. He had committed suicide with an overdose of prescription medication. Richard Chase told the detectives, quote, locked doors are a sign that I was not welcome, but unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. <laughs> that is the grotesque true story of Richard Chase the Vampire of Sacramento. He is a cake, isn't he? He is a batter. So he thought that UFOs wanted his soul and then he had to kill to keep his blood volume up to get a boner and then to keep the aliens away. Like this guy just kept getting fruitier. Actually, you know what? Now that you think about it, I don't know how that did not hold up in court. I don't know how he didn't walk free. <laughs> For fuck's sakes. Richard Chase, he's gross. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come 
for you. Onward, we travel in our never-ending quest to find a scary movie. This week's horror recommendation is the 2013 film The Green Inferno by Eli Roth, which is inspired by the 1980 film Cannibal Holocaust. And as the title implies, it's about cannibalism. (laughs) A plane crashes in Peru and the survivors are kidnapped by a cannibal tribe. I've watched The Green Inferno purposely, actually on a date with a guy, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that I didn't want to, like, continue going on dates with him and i knew he didn't like horror movies so i'm like oh this one is so tame and um if he's listening fuck (laughs) yeah he didn't want another date after that so mission successful on my part humiliation successful on his part so here's the thing with the green inferno if you have a weak stomach you won't finish it but it's a good movie and it's scary It's loosely based on Cannibal Holocaust, and that film in particular was created when there was no animal rights on filming in movies. So the animal deaths are real, and I can't sit and watch that shit. So I'm not recommending Cannibal Holocaust. It was banned in 53 countries. I've seen it because, you know, I have to watch them all. But I didn't enjoy it. And the filmmakers actually got taken to court and had to bring the actors to prove that nobody was murdered because that's how intense the film was. So Eli Roth, being the horror genius that he is, he did the Green Inferno and smashed it out of the ballpark without killing any animals. So thank you, Eli. The YouTube horror short this week is called The Amwa, and the production company is Alter, one of my favorites. And it's 13 minutes long, and I will attach the link in this week's episode description. So check out the green inferno check out the youtube horror short the armoire and keep sending me your horror movie recommendations i have a list building up and i'm working my way through them thank you thank you thank you and i tried to scare you now you try to scare me rate and review follow lullaby the fear podcast on instagram at lullaby the fear podcast and thank you so much for listening to this week's lullaby sweet dreams lights out